from coast to coast to coast. You are listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome back. I'm Sean Ho, and I will be your host for the next half hour of environmental news. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta, on Treaty 6. The historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dini, and many other First Peoples. Treaty is about relationships, and the very least we can do in this relationship is acknowledge the people who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. In this week's episode, Terra Informa's Hannah Hanningham and Dylan Hall deliver another interview from the 2019 Congress of the Humanities and Social Science, a gathering of over 7,000 academics that took place on the University of British Columbia campus in June of this year. In this session, Hannah and Dylan caught up with Marisa Magnuson, an indigenous photographer and a graduate student. After she presented a talk titled Reframing History, Flipping Artistic Perspective of Indigenous Identity, the interview explores how art is used to shape and reshape our understanding of people, history, and places. We will share a few different pieces of that interview, along with headlines explaining how art is connected to our understanding of the climate emergency and the role art plays in climate activism. But first, here's Marisa Magnuson introducing herself and her work as an artist and a researcher. Um, do you just want to introduce yourself? Um, who are you? What are you studying? Sure. So my name is Marissa Magnuson. I am a Cree, Métis, and Norwegian photographer, artist, musician, and graduate student at Trent University, and I'm currently pursuing my master's there. How did you come about um, like realizing what you wanted to do or what you wanted to, to study? So prior to doing my master's in Canadian and Indigenous studies, I was doing my Bachelor of Fine Arts in music and I was actually studying flamenco guitar. Um, and while doing that, um, I decided to do this independent study where I went to Spain and I studied with flamenco gypsy masters for a month and I ended up writing a book about that and um, the experience of you know, being immersed in a culture and going through that was incredibly difficult um, as a female flamenco guitarist, because that's not something accepted. Um, but I just realized the journey of documenting that was um, incredibly rewarding uh, for myself, because I also included my photography. And so I approached um, the professor that I worked with for that project, and I said, look, I also want to learn about my indigenous heritage. Would you be open 
to me doing another project, another book about me exploring that. And I, I tried to pitch him this idea of, it's, oh, it's going to be music-based because music is always involved in ceremony. He's like, no, Marissa, like, just go and learn about yourself and, you know, do it because you need to. And so I did that, and that kind of set me up for my master's. Um, so I came into my master's knowing that I wanted to do something artistic related because I'm also a photographer. And that same year I did my first solo exhibition titled Lost and Found, A Journey Towards Cultural Reclamation, which um, highlighted an ethnographic photograph of a schoolyard swing encapsulated in ice. And that was titled Frozen Chains of Childhood. And it was a reflection on residential school experiences. And then surrounding that was uh, photos from the York University Steve Howell um, and really highlighting cultural pride and identity and so those experiences really shaped where I am today and what I'm pursuing. So yeah I came to Trent University to study Indigenous Studies and uh, I knew I wanted to involve myself as an artist in some capacity so that's kind of what led me to where I am today. What are you focusing your master's on? That is a good question. It is really hard to narrow it down, and I'm still working on that. I was hoping that being here at UBC for Congress would help me <laughs> with narrowing down what I want to talk about. But I'm really interested in the stereotypes of Indigenous people as depicted through visual art, and how Indigenous artists are kind of debunking those stereotypes, challenging them, and flipping those narratives. So looking at Kent Monkman is a prime example and true inspiration for my work, because he looks at a lot of uh, paintings throughout the 18th to 20th century by a lot of American but also Canadian artists, um, settler artists such as Thomas Cole, Charles Fernand and Wimmer, um, Edward Curtis, and he flips those narratives. So those people often depicted Indigenous peoples the way they wanted to see them, as savages, as uh, romantics, as um, vanishing, and Kent Monkman is kind of turning that on, on its head. Um, so looking at that sort of thing, but then also the musician in me is also looking at uh, artists like Jeremy Dutcher and how he's reclaiming his language and his culture and his songs going through the National Archives and looking into wax cylinder recordings and bringing that back to his community. So I'm really interested in kind of bringing forth the, the archives of anthropologists and what they documented. Yes, they had a bias, but they also, their work can be really helpful in this revitalization, right? So th there's a lot going on, <laughs> but I, I do need to narrow it down for sure. But those are my main areas of interest at the moment. As reported by the New York Times, Douglas Crane, art scholar, writer, and curator, died at his Manhattan home on July 5, 2019. While the name may not be familiar, the work of Mr. Crane has been credited with disrupting the field of art history, forcing art works to be viewed through a social lens, and pushing the boundaries between art, cultural studies, and activism. A vocal AIDS activist, Mr. Crane sought to draw attention to the representation of social issues in the arts and culture. While AIDS was the greatest social issue of Mr. Crane's generation, his legacy on the art world may be seen in the controversy around multiple museums and art galleries in response to the greatest social issue of our generation, the climate crisis. 
On July 17th, the Tate Galleries, a group of four art galleries in the United Kingdom, released a statement declaring a climate emergency and pledging to improve their sustainability with a 10% carbon footprint reduction by 2023. The announcement followed a panel discussion held on July 8th on the Tate Morden in London in partnership with Climate Action Week and featuring current art exhibitor Olaf Eliasson. The announcement is being described as an art of solidarity, with Tate Gallery stating, quote, as our audiences and communities across the world confront climate extinction, we must shine a spotlight on these critical issues through art, end quote. The Tate Group of Museums has experienced past criticism and protest over a 26-year relationship with oil giant BP. Funding ties between the two groups were cut in 2016, and it seems that Tate is trying to develop in a new and greener direction, which recognizes the intersection of art, social justice, and the environment. At the same time, London's Royal Opera House is currently at the center of protests over oil sponsorship of the arts, with Extinction Rebellion holding a mass dying outside the building on Tuesday, July 2nd, before a performance of the opera Carmen. Part of the full day of protest, activists were calling for the Royal Opera House to also sever ties with BP and reject funding from oil companies in the arts and other cultural institutions because of the harm these companies do to the environment. In addition to the Royal Opera House, the Royal Shakespeare Company, British Museum, and National Portrait Gallery all receive benefits from BP through direct sponsorship, ticket subsidies, or other means. According to Peter Massa, head of BP Europe and UK, Climate change is a, quote, defining issue of our time, end quote. However, he also says, quote, it's a small number of very loud voices, end quote, that are demonstrating against BP. While BP representatives and some of these cultural institutions suggest BP is giving back to society through these sponsorships, activists suggest this type of funding is simply a cover-up to mask the damage fossil fuels are doing to our planet and society. Other environmental organizations are also calling on UK control institutions to sever ties with the oil sponsorship, including performance art group to BP or not to BP, and control onstate. Actor Mark Rylance from the film Bridge of Spice has resigned as an associate actor with the Royal Shakespeare Company after being inspired by an Extinction Rebellion demonstration, and actor Mariam Maglis, who played Professor Sprout in the Harry Potter movies, has stated she will not accept any future roles with the company. So we just came from an amazing panel presentation and discussion. You gave an awesome presentation on some of these both indigenous and settler colonial artists. Do you want to just sort of give like a quick rundown of the presentation that you gave today? 
So the presentation that I gave today was titled Reframing History, Flipping Artistic Perspectives of Indigenous Identity. And I was looking at the historical depictions of Indigenous people um, throughout the 18th to 20th century by white European settler artists um, and looking at the stereotypes in which those artworks embody. Um, for example, the Romantic Indian, the Savage Indian, and the Vanishing Indian. And then juxtaposing that with what um, contemporary Indigenous artists are producing and kind of challenging those narratives. So looking at the work of Kent Monkman and how he's flipping those narratives of Edward Curtis um, depicting romantic Indians in his photographs or Charles Fernand and Wimar depicting savage Indians. And so that, that was what I was mainly talking about it was a lot of Kent Monkman based work. Um, but I also alluded to some other artists such as Matika Wilbur, who is an indigenous photographer and she worked on a project called Project 562 which is she went through over 562 federally recognized tribes in the United States and she photographed and documented these people the way that they wanted to be seen. So she often gets challenged in her work because it's not adhering to that stereotypical Indian image of this stoic Indian or this romantic Indian. But the people that she, are, she is photographing, they are real indigenous people. So I looked at her work and I also brought in um, examples of Jeremy Dutcher. So Jeremy Dutcher is a Wollastoki um, musician and he spent five years working on his most recent album, uh, which has since won Juno's and uh, Polaris Prize. And he went into the National Archives in Gatineau and he found over 100 Malseat chant songs. And um, these were songs that he never heard and his community kind of lost them with the whole banning of music and drumming during colonization. And so he's bringing them back and he's creating this dialogue between the past, the present and the future in his work because he's bringing the archives and digitizing them and creating a column response. Um, so the way that this ties in with my paper is that his album artwork also embodies this whole flipping of the narrative. So he took a photograph of Francis Densmore recording a chief, um, a very famous photograph, and he kind of flipped it on its head. And so on the cover of his album artwork, he is sitting um, to record somebody. And then on the back, he is being recorded. So again, this, this whole notion of, well, you know, I am creating this conversation, but at the same time, I'm bringing forth these conversations of the past. So I find that whole flipping of the narrative to be a very interesting idea. And so that's something that's been the center of my work. And all of these artists are so present. Yes. And I think that's one of the fundamental points mm -hmm. that they're making with their art, yes. where the stereotype is of the dying Indian, of the vanishing Indian that is going to wither away in the outpouring of colonization. It's kind of ironic, right? Yeah. Because all these, these paintings that I'm looking at and these artworks, they're all saying that we're not going to be here anymore, but here we are, and people are still talking about it, and the stereotypes still persist. And as an Indigenous person, I have unfortunately been faced with some of these stereotypes in my life. And so I feel like art is a great way of kind of bringing up these discussions because people, in my experience as an artist, are more willing to have those conversations when it's through art because it doesn't quite attack a person per se, but opens people to these ideas. And so that's why I really enjoy looking at this kind of work. 
art has a powerful effect on representation, and what we see in our everyday surroundings contributes to our understanding of the world. While Marisa's research focuses on flipping perceptions of indigenous peoples through art, artistic works are increasingly being used to raise environmental awareness and change the way we represent the environment in urban spaces and conversations. In Vancouver, Shepard Ferry, the artist behind the 2008 Obama Hope painting, will be working with the Barad Arts Foundation to produce a 20-story mural at the corner of West Georgia and Barad Streets. The mural, titled Earth's Justice, is about respecting and preserving the planet, with Ferry explaining, quote, Art is often tucked away in galleries and museums, and environmental policy discussions are often tucked away in politicians' offices. I would like to see art and discussion of the future of the planet have a more public role. A mural on the scale of Earth's justice changes the cityscape and cannot be ignored. I hope it is not only fuels a discussion, but inspires others to use art in a similar way." Unquote. Earth Justice is the first of several large public art pieces commissioned through the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association and Vancouver Mural Festival. The Mural Festival runs from August 1st to August 10th. Instead of buildings, the New York Department of Sanitation is using garbage trucks as a covens for a series of murals encouraging sustainability in the city. Trucks of Art was recently premiered in Times Square, an exhibition of five new collection trucks hand-painted based on designs submitted from around the world. The artists used old paint collected by the Department of Sanitation to contribute to a zero-waste theme, and the truck will start traveling regular collection routes in August to display the work throughout the city. The painting honors the 7,500 sanitation workers in New York while using bold colors and images to engage the public around waste, nature, and the environment. Closer to home, the Morris and Helen Belkin Gallery on the UBC campus recently ran an exhibition exploring indigenous rights, activism, and the environment. Displayed from January to April 2019, the exhibition, titled Hexam to Be Here Always, included sculpture, painting, drawing, film, audio pieces, and more from indigenous Canadian and other artists, intended to challenge the notion that First Nation art is only drawn from traditional or cultural heritage rather than contemporary sources. The exhibition was part of a partnership between the Belkin Gallery, Cineworks, and Zawadetnu First Nation for a larger commission called Mirrored in Stone. While the exhibition is now over, more information and some of the images can be found at links on our website. Let's go back to Marisa to hear more about her own work explores representation, resistance, and protest from an indigenous context. Yeah, I was wondering about the ways that these powerful images and untrue images of indigenous people 
have reverberated into the present mm -hmm. through both settler minds and indigenous people's ideas of themselves potentially. So are there any particular ways that that's happened to you or how do you think it's played out and continues to play out? So I'll bring back the example of the photograph that I was talking about earlier, Frozen Chains of Childhood, which is one of my own. I've exhibited it at quite a few different places, at universities and uh, around the GTA. And I'm, I always open up with asking people what they think because I'm curious. I want to know what the viewers are taking away from my art before I put my own thoughts and ideas into their mind, right? And so I would display this image and I would ask people, what does this make you feel? Like, what do you think about? And I was astonished how close they were to what I was actually trying to depict, but also just how open they were to hearing more if they weren't aware. Um, so that photograph talks about residential schools, um, about the isolating experience and like frozen chains, thinking about, you know, the, the loss of childhood um, because you're a prisoner. And so some people were not aware of the story of residential schools, and that became a great spark for a dialogue. And they would say, oh, well, I, I didn't know about that. Can you please tell me more? Some people would be right on the nose, and they would, you know, they would say exactly what I was thinking. I just thought that was such a cool experience and a way to talk to people about these kinds of very difficult conversations that otherwise, you know, I wouldn't go up to someone on the street and say, have you heard about residential schools? You want to talk about that? Because that's not really something that, you know, it's not an easy conversation. And I feel like art makes it a little easier, but it, it also evokes a lot of emotion and can make it painful too. So it's kind of a, a, a gamble with that kind of thing. But Trent University actually just recently um, started doing working on this project um, because they found that it's a heavily indigenous populated university, um, also heavily uh, indigenous studies focused. Um, and so they were finding that a lot of their indigenous students were challenged with these stereotypes that are perpetuated through the media and through various other forms not only by their peers, but also by professors. And some of those stereotypes were the drunken Indian or the stupid Indian, like, oh, you can speak English, like things like that. Or the idea that, oh, you're indigenous, so you know about all things indigenous. So for myself, I'm Korean Métis, but I, I should know about Anishinaabe people because I'm indigenous and that's not true, right? And even for a lot of us like myself, I'm, I'm learning about what it means to be Korean Métis because there's a detachment from all the impacts of colonialism on my family, right? So that expectation that we are kind of the knowledge holders of everything is something that uh, often as students were challenged with. And so they wanted to kind of bring this to the attention of people. Um, so they worked on creating a poster series and they invited um, volunteers to model and choose a stereotype. So for me, I chose the stereotype of we're not, uh, we don't know everything we're about all indigenous people. We aren't the knowledge holder. So I was photographed in some of my own regalia that I'm working on making, my ribbon skirt and my, my hair ties. 
but I was also wearing a blazer. So it was something that I had recently worn in lecturing a course at York University um, on indigenous arts, culture, identity, and history. <laughs> Quite a, a whirlwind of a, a lecture for three hours. Yeah, so I had previously worn that outfit, um, and so I was posed in a classroom. And then in the same pose, uh, I, had, I was wearing just what I would wear every day to school. And so they're, they're working on kind of flipping those stereotypes as well, which is quite interesting. And some people chose like the drunken Indian. Um, another student, she chose, she's Inuit, and she did a piece where she was cutting up meat, um, seal meat on the floor with, uh, I can't remember what the knives are called, uh, traditional. And she said, we're not called Eskimos because Eskimo means the one who eats blood. And so she was trying to challenge that stereotype. So that's something that the university is working on campaigning, and it should be coming out in the fall of uh, this year for their elders gathering. So I'm excited to see how that turns out, as well as the response, because it'll be interesting to see if people kind of understand what's being conveyed through that uh, poster series, or if they're gonna make fun of it. Because sometimes when people don't understand, they just resort to you know, the, the stereotypes that they grew up in their head, and they're like, oh, just another, you know that kind of thing. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. You know, it's sometimes I feel like Indigenous art and Indigenous voices are silenced in Canada. And especially growing up, like I didn't learn about residential schools. I didn't learn about this Indigenous perspective until I took it upon myself to take a course in university, which I had to pay for. But just my public education did not teach me these things. And little did I realize that that was something that actually impacted my family because they were quite hush about it and trying to protect me in a way. And so I think, you know, through this whole time that we're in of the truth and reconciliation, that Indigenous people and settlers have two very different roles to play, but we need to come together. And so unfortunately, there's been a lot of cuts recently to the education system, at least within Toronto or within Ontario, um, which I'm very sad about uh, in terms of like the arts grants and the Indigenous education. Um, so I had a lot of hope that that was something that was going to be a little bit more predominant in um, our education system. But it doesn't seem to be that way at the moment. So I would really advise people to, you know, do your, your homework and figure out, you know, what territory are you on? What are the traditional people? What are their, their customs around your area? For myself, I live um, in Anishinaabe territory, and so I learn a lot from them about uh, their culture and traditions, and, you know, not to burden uh, indigenous people and saying, look, teach me, you know, you gotta do the, the work yourself. So I'd say, you know, Take a look on the internet. There's lots of different things in there. Be cautious of what you read because not all of it is, uh, you know, credible. But there, there's tons of stuff coming out in film and art, and I just, I really hope that people are looking into that kind of thing and taking it upon themselves to learn more. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, and thank you for your amazing presentation. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for speaking with us, and may you keep creating. Mm -hmm. and spreading your art. Thank you guys for approaching me. It was lovely talking with you today. And chi miigwech.
That was Tara Informas, Hannah Cunningham, and Dylan Hall speaking with Indigenous photographer and student Marisa Magnuson about representation, protest, and flipping artistic perspectives. That's all for the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening to Terra Informa. If you have questions or comments about the show, send us an email to terra at cgsr.com, tweet us at Terra Informa, or check us out on Facebook. To catch up on the latest environmental news, visit our website, terrainforma.ca. Thank you to our volunteers and Terra Informas. Elizabeth Dowdell and Amanda Rooney for helping out with this week's episode. Taro Informa is entirely volunteer-run, and so why is because of generous donations to our host studio, CGSR 88.5 FM. Visit cgsr.com to learn more about the station and consider a donation to keep environmental news like this on the air. I have been your host, Sean Ho. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you will catch us next week, right here on Terra Informa. Informa.